Welcome to my podcast, Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold. This is episode 14, Civil War. Just for review, the last episode, I talked about the Emperor Daoguang's reign and the many, many troubles he had governing China. His reign is known for its external disasters and internal rebellions. We learned how China, the Qing Dynasty, had lost territory in Xinjiang province. We also learned about infrastructure problems along the Yellow River and the Grand Canal. There were also pirates and the problems they were causing with the food supply. And finally, we talked about the growing opium problem culminating in the first opium war. In this episode, I want to continue with the discussion of the first Opium War, primarily the treaties that resulted from it and their impact. I will conclude Daoguan's reign and begin his successor's reign. And finally, we reach the point of the Qing story of its civil war, its second, if you count the War of the Three Feudatories, the infamous or famous. Taiping Rebellion. I'll get to that. Start of that rebellion, at least at the end of this episode. So we last talked about the treaties that were negotiated resulting from the Chinese losses from the First Opium War to the British. And the Chinese and the English sat down to negotiate an end to this First Opium War. And that culminated in a treaty named for the city where the parties met, Nanjing or Nanking, the Treaty of Nanjing. The treaty was adopted on August 29, 1842. And its terms were the Qing Dynasty ceded Hong Kong to the English. The Qing Dynasty also agreed to pay the English an indemnity of $21 million. The Qing Dynasty also agreed to open four additional ports for sea trade, bringing the number from one seaport to five. Gone forever, was the sole trading port of Canton. These treaty ports, as they became known as treaty ports, were Fuzhou, Ningbo, Shanghai, and Xiamen, in addition to, of course, Canton. Just a little over a year later, a supplemental treaty was also negotiated by the same parties, and it is known as the Treaty of the Bogue. 
and it was signed on October 8, 1843, a little over a year later after the Treaty of Nanjing. And in that treaty, the English were given favored nation status. This gave English citizens the rights to extraterritoriality. And this meant that English citizens would be only subject to English laws and justice for crimes they committed in China. Other nations quickly demanded the same rights and privileges from China, and the Chinese government were quick to grant these same rights and privileges as they wanted to keep all nations on the same footing. On July 3, 1844, the Americans signed their own treaty with the Qing Dynasty. It is known as the Treaty of Wangxia. And Wangxia is the name of the suburban city outside Macau. It was the first formal agreement between the United States and China. The U.S., like other nations, also had a large trade imbalance with China, and this would have been the impetus for such a treaty. The treaty was negotiated by United States Congressman from Massachusetts, Caleb Cushing, and it was modeled largely after the English treaty Nanjing, and it gave the Americans the same treatment as the English, and it went a bit further. In this treaty, missionaries could stay and be permitted to hire Mandarin tutors. Anyone involved in the opium trade would be prosecuted under Chinese law. So that's a distinction between this treaty and the one the English had signed. For all other crimes not pertaining to opium, extraterritoriality would govern. President John Tyler signed this treaty into law on January 17, 1845. For context purposes only, at this same time in the United States, Texas was being admitted into the Union. At roughly the same time as this treaty, the French would also receive the same treatment in their own treaty with the Qing Dynasty called the Treaty of Huangpu. Notice one thing, however, with all of these treaties. Opium and its trade were still considered illegal in China. We'll come back to this in a little bit. There's been much discussion and debate over the years over the significance of the First Opium War. Many Chinese today believe the treaties began a century of humiliation by foreign powers. There is no doubt that is true. The treaties did build on Western imperialism in China, but it has also been observed that these first set of treaties coming out of the first opium war, their impact were not far-reaching. Some of the terms of these treaties were not unprecedented. For instance, 
the concept of extraterritoriality, while appearing a serious breach of sovereignty, was a common privilege granted by most nations in their customary discourse with other nations. Whatever far-reaching impact these treaties may have or have not had would be a moot point anyways within the next 20 years. Keep in mind, for all the time these events that I have described were ongoing, Daoguang was still the emperor. He would die in February of 1850 at the summer palace outside Peking. He was 67. Just before he died, he canceled the country's New Year celebrations because of a solar eclipse. He, believing this to be a terrible omen, worried himself to death and died a few weeks later. Before he passed, he did manage to name his fourth son, Iju, to succeed him. Iju would become the next emperor, and that emperor's name would be Xianfeng. Daoguan cannot be considered to be anything other than an ineffective emperor. Well-meaning and sincere, as he was known for, unfortunately, were two traits that were not capable of steering China and the Qing dynasty in a different direction. Recognizing that Daoguan cannot be entirely blamed for the unequal treaties. However, he did nothing to improve things. The new emperor that I just mentioned, Xianfeng, began his life on July 17, 1831, at the Summer Palace outside Peking. He was the fourth son of Daoguang. He would have been 19 when his father died, and he took over the throne in early 1850. His reign would be plagued by rebellions, protests, and foreign invasions. His personal birth name would have been Aishinjielo Iju. However, I will refer to him by his more common and official name as the Emperor Xianfeng. Xianfeng is probably most associated with the seminal event in Qing Dynasty history, the Taiping Rebellion, known commonly as the Chinese Civil War. I call it the Second Civil War because I count the War of the Three Feudatories early on in the Qing Dynasty as the first one. This rebellion would take the Qing Dynasty 14 years to stop it. Before it was through, an estimated 20 million Chinese civilians and rebels would be casualties. And this probably is a huge underestimate. Even at the number of 20 million, it would make the rebellion 
one of the bloodiest revolts and wars in world history. At their height, the Taipings would control about a third of China. The rebellion would devastate 16 Chinese provinces and destroy 600 cities. So where do I begin talking about this event without making this podcast series many more episodes longer? Well, let me try. And let me give a little context first. Some of the roots of the revolution can be traced back in China's history long before the Qing Dynasty. But much of the roots of the rebellion are attributable to the Qing Dynasty and leading up to that rebellion. In the late 18th century, the south and southeast coast of China was scourged by pirates, many of them non-Chinese descent. In the early 19th century, this banditry was joined with the Chinese underworld involved in the opium trade and distribution. From the Taiping's viewpoint, China had suffered numerous rebellions, some small, some not, natural disasters, combined with foreign encroachments and the banditry associated with opium, It was this backdrop of discontent and dissatisfaction that these people had with the Manchus. It was clear to everyone that China's traditional order was collapsing. That proved to be fertile ground for alternative governing options and answers. So the Taiping Rebellion started simply as a traditional peasant revolt in the south part of China, like many before it. The exact date of when it started is difficult to nail down. Some say 1850 it began, others say 1851. The new feature of this rebellion, unlike the others, was its leader. His name Hong Xiuquan. He was a Han Chinese man that converted from Buddhism to Christianity. And the story told is that he was seriously ill and became delusional in this illness. In that delusional, catatonic state, he claimed God came to him removed his organs, cleansed them, put them back in his body, and gave him a sword and ordered him to make war against idolaters. During his recovery, he was befriended and counseled by an American Baptist preacher that he claimed, that is, Hong Xiuquan claimed, taught him the word of God. Hong Xiuquan himself became a Christian minister and attracted followers, many of them. He preached that he was the Son of God and Jesus' brother. Behind him 
His motives were simple. He wanted to establish a kingdom of God. So the rebellion would be as much an ideological and social upheaval as anything else. When the violence started, cities were sacked, and he gained recruits everywhere he went. The word Taiping means heavenly kingdom of great peace. His followers believed he had the mandate of heaven. And early on in the rebellion, the Taipings made rapid progress early on. By 1853, the rebels had captured Nanjing and established their kingdom. They also put pressure on Shanghai and Wuchang. The kingdom, at its core, was politically communist or socialist. They taught and encouraged sexual austerity. Women were prohibited from foot-binding. It prohibited prostitution and opium and gambling and tobacco and alcohol and polygamy. However, despite the Taiping's early success and momentum, they stalled at Nanjing. Except for one weak attempt to capture Peking, after 1856, the revolution never moved further north. And after 1856, they were on the defensive. Ultimately, their failure to go after Peking was their undoing. It should be duly noted that at this time, there were foreign powers in China and they had their interest to protect in China. At the start of this rebellion, the English and the French were neutral toward the Taipings. The Western nations' only request to the Taipings was to leave the treaty ports unmolested. In the beginning of the rebellion, the English considered the Taipings as a separate autonomous entity in the middle Yangtze region of China. But that would change. And more on that in a later episode. Before I get too far in the Taiping Revolution, contemporaneously, there were other key events happening in China that were unrelated to the Taiping Rebellion. The Miao people rebelled again in 1854, and it took nearly 20 years to fully suppress that movement. There was also a revolt in Yunnan province that began in 1856, and that would take 17 years to quell that revolt. And then there was Russia. In the spring of 1858, Russia attacked in the extreme northeast regions of Manchuria. And these, of course, that area, of course, were, were the native lands of the Manchus. 
And the reason for this was over hunting and trading issues. That conflict finally culminated in another treaty. In May 1858, the Russians and the Chinese entered into the Treaty of Aigun, A-I-G-U-N. In it, China ceded to Russia 600,000 square kilometers of land in northeast Manchuria. This is probably a good spot to end the episode. I could, of course, go on, but, but I decided to get fresh into this continuing saga in the next episode. A lot has already happened, and some of it was still ongoing. In the next episode, I will continue with the Taiping Rebellion. There's also the Neon Rebellion. That's right, another one. And I must mention it in connection with the Taiping Uprising. And there is also the Second Opium War. Oh, and more treaties and Western nations too. The next episode will have it all. I hope you'll come back to find out about all of these events and issues. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.